What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, a woman talked to me today when I was uh, going to the store. Uh, I held the door open for her. She said, thank you. And as I walked in, she said, what's that on your arm? And it's a tattoo of these badges with little images, like park ranger badges, with these little images inside them. One has a mug, which is supposed to be hot chocolate. The other one is a stick of honey. The next one is a little flower with a smiley face. And the last one is a clock that says 2, like 2 a.m. And I explained to her that uh, my daughter came up with a tattoo of a happy memory of hers when she woke up at 2 in the morning and she wasn't feeling good and she had a sore throat and a cough. And so we looked up how to take care of that online and she, we came up with the hot chocolate and the honey to help with the cough. And then we played Plants vs. Zombies until she finally went to bed. And she said, oh, you're such a good dad. And I said, oh, thanks. And then she walked off. Oh, before she walked off, I said, oh, why'd you ask? And she said, oh, because I saw the honey on your arm and I raised bees. And I said, oh, you raise bees. And then she said, yeah. And then that was it. So then as I was checking out, I ran into her again. And uh, she said, you got to spread the word. You're a good guy. You're a real good dad. And I said, oh, thanks. And I thought, how is there any way for me to let her know that I'm single? She's very uh, friendly, nice. Uh, she's attractive. She's pretty out of my league. But, you know, is there any way for me to let, let her know without uh, being too obvious? And then I realized she raises bees. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books, for the most part, that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe, and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do, and uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you, and maybe your kid in the back seat. Have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself, who are these people? Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds, the cars outside the window, the creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Tonight, we will continue reading from The Iron Heel by Jack London. Chapter 4, Slaves of the Machine. Where we left off in Chapter 3, Avis had tracked down Jackson, the one-armed man, questioned him about how he lost his arm in the factory 
and if he really was done wrong by society, and she found him boring and stupid. So, she hunted down his lawyer, who is a sniveling man who is described more than once as whining, and all his responses were in a whine. And he told her that, yes, he did sell Jackson out. He didn't do his job as a lawyer because he knew that he would get recognition and uh, a higher pay, probably, if he were to play ball with the big boys and he could feed his family. She went back to Ernest and told him he was right and perfect in everything he does. And Ernest indignantly said, I know, and said, I guess I'm going to leave your dad's house now. And so also we found out that Ernest is really obsessed with health care and who's paying more than the others. Apparently, since he's a revolutionary and he's into gunplay, he's going to have to pay more and he thinks that sucks. So now on to chapter four, Slaves of the Machine. The more I thought of Jackson's arm, the more shaken I was. I was confronted by the concrete. For the first time, I was seeing life. My university life and study and culture had not been real. I had learned nothing but theories of life and society that looked all very well on the printed page, but now I had seen life itself. Jackson's arm was a fact of life. Quote, The fact, man. The the irrefragable fact. (laughs) Irrefragable. Irrefragable. I'm going to let that one go. Of Ernest was ringing in my consciousness. It seemed monstrous. Impossible. That our whole society was based upon blood. And yet there was Jackson. I could not get away from him. Constantly my thoughts swung back to him as the compass to the pole. He had been monstrously treated. His blood had not been paid for in order that a larger dividend might be paid. And I knew a score of happy, complacent families that had received those dividends and by that much had profited by Jackson's blood. If one man could be so monstrously treated and society move on its way unheeding, might not many men be so monstrously treated? I remember Ernest's women of Chicago who toiled for 90 cents a week and the child slaves of the southern cotton mills he had described. And I could see their wan white hands from which the blood had been pressed at work upon the cloth out of which had been made my gown. And then I thought of the Sierra Mills and the dividends that had been paid, and I saw the blood of Jackson upon my gown as well. Jackson, I could not escape. Always my meditations led me back to him. Down in the depths of me I had a feeling that I stood on the edge of a precipice. It was as though I were about to see a new and awful revelation of life. And not I alone. My whole world was turning over. There was my father, I could see, the effect Ernest was beginning to have on him. And then there was the bishop. When I had last seen him, he looked a sick man. He was at high nervous tension, and in his eyes there was an unspeakable horror. From the little I learned, I knew that Ernest had been keeping his promise of taking him through hell. But what scenes of hell the bishop's eyes had seen I knew not. 
for he seemed too stunned to speak of them. Once, the feeling strong upon me that my little world and all the world was turning over, I thought of Ernest as the cause of it. And I also thought, quote, We were so happy and peaceful before he came. And in the next moment, I was aware that the thought was a treason against truth. And Ernest rose before me transfigured, the apostle of truth, with shining brows and the fearlessness of one of, one of God's own angels, battling for the truth and the right. Jeez. <laughs> and battling for the successor of the poor and lonely and oppressed. Oh, lonely too? He's battling for people like me. Back in 1900. And then there arose before me another figure. The Christ. He, too, had taken the part of the lowly and oppressed, and against all the established power of priests and Pharisee, and I remembered his end upon the cross, and my heart contracted with a pang as I thought of Ernest. Was he, too, destined for a cross? He, with his clarion call and his war-noted voice, and all the fine man's vigor of him. This is so weird to read. (laughs) And in that moment, I knew that I loved him, of course. Wow, it's so easy. And that I was melting with desire to comfort him. Oh, and I thought of his life. She wants to fix him. A sordid, harsh, and meager life it must have been. And I thought of his father, who had lied and stolen for him and had been worked to death. And he himself had gone into the mills when he was ten! Exclamation point. All my heart seemed bursting with desire to fold my arms around him, and to rest his head upon my breast. His head that must be weary with so many thoughts, and to give him rest, just rest, and easement and forgetfulness for a tender space. I met Colonel Ingram at a church reception. Him I knew well, and had known well for many years. I trapped him behind large palms and rubber plants. Though he did not know he was trapped, he met me with the conventional gaiety and gallantry. He was ever a graceful man, diplomatic, tactful, and considerate. And as for his appearance, he was the most distinguished-looking man in our society. Beside him... Even the venerable head of the university looked tawdry and small. And yet I found Colonel Ingram situated the same as the unlettered mechanics. He was not a free agent. He, too, was bound upon the wheel. I shall never forget the change in him when I mentioned Jackson's case. His smiling good nature vanished like a ghost. A sudden, frightful expression distorted his well-bred face. I felt the same alarm that I had felt when James Smith broke out. But Colonel Ingram did not curse. That was the slightest difference that was left between the working man and him. He was famed as a wit. Mm. But he had no wit now, and, unconsciously, this way and that, he glanced for avenues of escape, but he was trapped amid the palms and rubber trees. Oh, he was sick of the sound of Jackson's name. Why had I brought the matter up? He did not relish my joke. It was poor taste on my part and very inconsiderate. Did I not know that in his profession personal feelings did not count? 
He left his personal feelings at home when he went down to the office. At the office, he had only professional feelings. Should Jackson have received damages, I asked? Certainly, he answered. That is, personally, I have a feeling he should. But that has nothing to do with the legal aspects of the case. He was getting his scattered wits slightly in hand. Tell me, has right anything to do with the law, I asked. You have used the wrong initial consonant. <laughs> he smiled in answer. Might, I queried, and he nodded his head. <laughs> and yet we are supposed to get justice by means of the law? That is the paradox of it, he countered. We do get justice. You are speaking professionally now, are you not? I asked. Colonel Ingram blushed. Actually blushed. And again he looked anxiously about him for a way of escape, but I blocked his path and did not offer to move. Tell me, I said. When one surrenders his personal feelings to his professional feelings, may not the action be defined as a sort of spiritual mayhem? I did not get an answer. Colonel Ingram had ingloriously bolted, overturning a palm in his flight. Oh, that's pretty dramatic. Just broke him down like that. Next, I tried the newspapers. I wrote a quiet, restrained, dispassionate account of Jackson's case. I made no charges against the men with whom I talked, nor, for that matter, did I even mention them. I gave the actual facts of the case, the long years Jackson had worked in the mills, his effort to save the machinery from damage and the consequent accident, and his own present wretched and starving condition. The three local newspapers rejected my communication. Likewise did the two weeklies. I got hold of Percy Layton. He was a graduate of the university, had gone in for journalism, and was then serving his apprenticeship as a reporter on the most influential of the three newspapers. He smiled when I asked him the reason the newspaper suppressed all mention of Jackson or his case. Editorial policy, he said. We have nothing to do with that. It's up to the editors. But why is it policy, I asked. We're all solid with the corporations, he answered. If you get paid advertising rates, you couldn't get any such matter into the papers. A man who tried to smuggle it in would lose his job. You couldn't get it in if you paid ten times the regular advertising rates. How about your own policy, I questioned. Oh, Pete's back. You're alive and crawling all over my table. Stay away from me. Nope, don't come over here. Oh, he curls up into a ball when I blow on him. That's adorable. Poor little guy. Yeah, get off my table, man. Go somewhere else. Go. There you go. Go running. Oh, man, he runs real fast. That made my skin tingle. Ooh. I love Pete, but he creeps me out. Oh, my skin's tingling. How about your own policy, I question. It would seem your function is to twist truth at the command of your employers, who, in turn, obey the behests of the corporations. I have anything to do with that, he looked uncomfortable for a moment, then brightened as he saw his way out. I, myself, do not write untruthful things. I keep square all right with my own conscience. Of course, there's lots that's repugnant in the course of the day's work, but then you see that's all part of the day's work, he rounded up boyishly, wound up boyishly. I'll just make up words. Yet you expect to sit in an editor's desk some day and conduct a policy. I'll be case-hardened by that time, was his reply. Since you are not yet case-hardened, tell me what you think right now about the general editorial policy. Man, these conversations. I don't think, he answered quickly. 
One can't kick over the ropes if he's going to succeed in journalism. I've learned that much at any rate. And he nodded, his young head sagely. But the right, I persisted. You don't understand the game. Of course it's all right, because it comes out all right, don't you see? Delightfully vague, I murmured, but my heart was aching for the youth of him, and I felt that I must either scream or burst into tears. Oh, this part's highlighted. This is a very popular line, so get ready for this. This is something that everyone has highlighted from this book in the Kindle app. I was beginning to see through the appearances of society in which I had always lived and to find the frightful realities that were beneath. Eh, all right, it's not the worst. There seems a tacit conspiracy against Jackson, and I was aware of a thrill of sympathy for the whining lawyer again, who had ingloriously fought his case. But this tacit conspiracy grew large. Not alone was it aimed against Jackson, it was aimed against every working man who was maimed in the mills. And if against every man in the mills, why not every man in the other mills and factories? In fact, why is it not true of all the industries? And if this was so, then society was a lie. I shrank back from my own conclusions. It was too terrible and too awful to be true. But there was Jackson, and Jackson's arm, and the blood that stained my gown. She's really just working, just she hates the clothes she's wearing, and dripped from my own roof beams, and there were many Jacksons, hundreds of them, in the mills alone, as Jackson himself had said, Jackson, I could not escape. I saw Mr. Wixon and Mr. Pertonwave, the two men who held most of the stock in the Sierra Mills, but I could not shake them as I had shaken the mechanics in their employ. I discovered that they had an ethic superior to that of the rest of society, it was what I may call the aristocratic ethic, or the master ethic. They talked in large ways of policy, and they identified policy and right. And to me, they talked in fatherly ways, patronizing my youth and inexperience. They were the most hopeless of all I encountered in my quest. They believed absolutely that their conduct was right, and there was no question about it, no discussion. They were convinced that they were the saviors of society, and that it was they who made happiness for the many. And they drew pathetic pictures of what would be the sufferings of the working class were it not for the employment that they, and they alone, by their wisdom, provided for it. Fresh from these two masters, I met Ernest and related my experience. He looked at me with a pleased expression and said... Colon, quote, really, this is fine. You are beginning to dig truth for yourself. It is your own empirical generalization, and it is correct. No man in the industrial machine is a free will agent, except the large capitalist. <clears throat> and he isn't, if you'll pardon the Irishism. Oh, man. There's a little link number next to it, and it would explain what Irishism is to me, except that I don't want to click it. So let's see if I highlight it. Dictionary definition. Download the free dictionary. I'm, I don't care. I'm downloading it. I want to see what Irishism is. 25%. 35%. 55%. Oh, yeah, it's just picking up speed now. Okay, almost there. 
Still no definition found. Great. We're never going to know what Irishism means, except that it's probably just weirdly rude towards Irish people. You see, the masters are quite sure that they are right in what they are doing. That is the crowning absurdity of the whole situation. They are so tied by their human nature that they can't do a thing unless they think it's right. They must have a sanction for their acts. When they want to do a thing, in business, of course, they must wait till there arises in their brains somehow a religious or ethical or scientific or philosophic concept that the thing is right. And then they go ahead and do it, unwitting that one of the weaknesses of the human mind is that the wish is parent to the thought. No matter what they want to do, the sanction always comes. They are superficial Casuists. I'm learning new words. A person who uses clever but unsound reasoning, especially in relation to moral questions. A sophist. Let's hear what they say is the uh, pronunciation of casuists. Casuists. Well, that didn't help with a robot voice. Casuists. Casuists. All right, fine, whatever. They are Jesuitical. Ooh. I'm not going to just spend the whole episode looking up new words. They even see their way of doing wrong. That right may come of it. Oh, this part's underlined. Somebody likes this. One of the pleasant and axiomatic fictions they have created is that they are superior to the rest of mankind in wisdom and efficiency. Therefrom comes their sanction to manage the bread and butter of the rest of mankind. They have even resurrected the theory of the divine right of kings. Commercial kings, in their case. Quote, The weakness in their position lies in that they are merely businessmen. They are not philosophers, they are not biologists, nor sociologists. If they were, of course, all would be well. A businessman, who is also a biologist or sociologist, would know approximately the right thing to do for humanity. But outside the realm of business, these men are stupid. They only know business. They do not know mankind nor society, and yet they set themselves up as arbitrators of the fates of the hungry millions and all the other millions thrown in. History, someday, will have an excruciating laugh at their expense. I was not surprised when I had my talk out with Mrs. Wickerson and Mrs. Pertonwave. They were society women. Their homes were palaces. They had many homes scattered all over the country, in the mountains, on lakes, and by the sea. They were tended by armies of servants, and their social activities were bewildering. They patronized the university and the churches, and the pastors especially bowed at their knees in meek subservience. They were powers, these two women. What of the money that was theirs? The power of subsidization of thought was theirs to a remarkable degree and I was soon to learn under earnest tuition. They aped their husbands and talked in the same large ways about policy and the duties and responsibilities of the rich. They were swayed by the same ethic that dominated their husbands, the ethic of their class, and they uttered glib phrases that their own ears did not understand. Also... They grew irritated when I told them of the deplorable condition of Jackson's family. And when I wondered that they had made no voluntary provision for the man, I was told that they thanked no one for instructing them in their social duties. 
When I asked them flatly to assist Jackson, they flatly refused. The astounding thing about it was that they refused in almost identically the same language. And this in the face of the fact that I had interviewed them separately, and that one did not know that I had seen or was going to see the other. Their common reply was that they were glad of the opportunity to make it perfectly plain that no premium would ever be put on carelessness by them, nor would they, by paying for an accident, tempt the poor to hurt themselves in the machinery. And they were sincere, these two women. They were drunk with conviction of their superiority, of their class, and of themselves. They had a sanction in their own class ethic for every act they perform as I drove away from Mrs. Purton Wade's great house, I looked back at it, and I remembered Ernest's expression, that they were bound to the machine, but that they were also bound that they sat on top of it. So that was chapter four of The Iron Heel by Jack London. What did we learn? We learned that talking to rich people can be frustrating. We learned that they don't like to admit they've done horrible things, which only seems natural to human nature, whether you're poor and you knifed a man for his bottle of milk, or you're rich and you fired a guy who got his arm torn off by a machine. I would say people are the same all over. Horrible. But here, there's only one bad person, and that's the rich ladies in their palaces. Which I can also agree with. We also learn that Ernest <clears throat> is like Jesus, which is pretty disturbing. Uh, the glorification of one character that I'm sure the author was writing himself into is just so over the top. And I'm not going to use the M word again. I used that in a previous episode. The last two, I just can't keep saying it over and over. But there you go. This is political literature at its finest from the early 20th century. To think that he would go on to write animal books. Oh, and Pete's alive. That was pretty cute. He curled up into a tiny little ball when I tried to blow him off the table. Adorable. So hooray that Pete's still around. Even though he creeped the heck out of me when he ran off like that. Oh god, it still gives me the willies. So that was my episode, and I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope to see you again soon.